The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aarons-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. When I'm struggling with anxiety, I crave sugar, salt, and alcohol. Turns out I'm not alone, and there's actually a reason behind my cravings. My guest, Kimberly Wilson, is going to share today how our cravings are connected to our moods, our emotions, and our hungry, hungry brains. Today, you're going to learn what to feed yourself when you're anxious, how to nourish better cognition, and how depression might be tied to your gut health and bodily inflammation. Your emotional world, my guest says, is not just from the neck up. Nutrition is an integral part of all of our daily lives. And many people are working to make access to information about what kind of ideal nutrition we need for better brain health and mental health more readily available. And my guest today, Kimberly Wilson, is one of them. She's a psychologist, a nutritionist, and a feeder, she says. She was also runner-up on The Great British Baking Show. She's author of the books How to Build a Healthy Brain and Unprocessed, How the Food We Eat is Fueling Our Mental Health Crisis. And she joined me to speak about the connection between food, mental health, physical well-being, and success at work. The first question I'm asking you as a scientist, which is, why do we love food so much? And why does food speak to us, especially in moments of anxiety? Mm -hmm. We love food because we have to. Mm-hmm. Um, food is, of course, essential to our survival. And the things that are essential to our survival, we are adapted to be motivated towards. So we see that, for example, in relationships, we're adapted. We have an attachment system that seems to be inbuilt. And so we're adapted to move towards people, to mimic, to comply, to behave in ways that are pro-social. And it becomes dangerous when we behave in ways that might lead us to be excluded. And when it comes to food, there are some inbuilt nutritional preferences or, or flavor preferences because flavor is an indicator to your body of nutrient content. So we have an inbuilt preference for things like sugar, which tells your body that this food is a source of carbohydrates, uh, salt, because uh, sodium ions are required for your nerves to function well, um, umami, which is that, that kind of rich, savory, proteiny flavor. Um, and again, that's about providing a protein and amino acids. They're essential for growth and repair of your tissues. So there are a group of flavours that we are innately designed to enjoy. Fatty flavours are in there as well. That's one called oleogustus. And when we are hungry, we're adapted to find that uncomfortable. So physical discomfort of hunger, um, but also the mood shift that comes with hunger. So that whether that's that feeling of irritability or agitation or kind of listlessness, all of those things become a, a driver, a motivator for you to get up 
and seek food so that you can avoid an energy crisis for your brain because your brain is the hungriest organ in your body and it can't store energy. So it wants to always be sure that there is a constant supply of energy. Mm. The relationship between food and anxiety can be a bi-directional one. So we know that for a proportion of people, when they are anxious, when they are stressed, we see shifts in their food intake and their food preferences. So about 30% of people, that will mean that they will eat more, where for another roughly 30%, they will eat less. And for others, it will make no difference. Hmm. But if we're thinking of, and I'll use in this case, anxiety as synonymous with stress, what we also know is that carbohydrates can help to blunt the stress response. Hmm. We know that if we preload somebody with sugar, so if I give you a kind of sugary beverage and then expose you to a stressor, the group of people who have had the sugary food or beverage have a lower peak of their stress response than those who haven't. And so for some people, an increased craving, liking, palatability, seeking out of sugary, carbohydrate-rich foods actually helps to mitigate their stress response. And this becomes really relevant when we're thinking about things like chronic work stress, maybe the stress of deprivation, of poverty, social exclusion, and those sorts of things. Interesting. And so the food is literally feeding our ability to sort of meet that fight or flight instinct. Yeah. It can really modulate for a lot of people the intensity of that response. Wow. I want to read this quote from your book, Unprocessed, to give us framework for the conversation. You're a psychologist. You're also a nutritionist. You're also a baker. You call yourself (laughs) a, a nerd and a feeder, which I love. You say, a patient who presents with depression is much more likely to be asked about the relationship with her mother rather than her diet or exercise. And when we think of something that increases one's risk for depression, we think of that family history, Mm -hmm. their chemistry, upbringing, not their nutrition. Mm -hmm. You say we're getting that all wrong. Yes. And it's not that, of course, those features, those, you know, those identified risk factors for depression aren't relevant. We know that family history, genetic risk factors, early life stressors, adverse childhood experiences absolutely all play a role. And the current understanding or kind of rationale for what increases somebody's risk of depression is a kind of two-point, a two-assault kind of double hit theory, which is someone has a vulnerability, a genetic risk factor. And then the second hit is the triggering of that or the exposure to a stressor early in life, which changes the expression of those genes Mm -hmm. and makes that person more vulnerable to them becoming unwell. What I'm saying is that we absolutely know that nutrition is a gene modifier. We know that in utero, nutrition has an effect on gene expression. We see that, for example, with vitamin D, which is essentially a steroid hormone, and it plays a really important role in the development of the dopaminergic neurons and the expression of of those nerve cells. But Mm. other nutrients do it too. Other nutrients and the byproducts of nutrients can affect your gene expression. So when your microbes break down fiber, they produce what are called short-chain fatty acids, and they are what are called HDAC inhibitors, which 
the histone is a part of your DNA. It's kind of the backbone of your DNA and they can affect your gene expression. We know that choline, which is found in liver and egg yolks and potentially betaine, which is found in beetroot, can also affect gene expression. So what I'm saying is that alongside those features, we know that nutrition, whether it's malnutrition or adequate nutrition, can really significantly affect gene expression. And so we should be thinking about the quality of nutrition much more, both preconception, during childhood and early life, but also for those who are at risk, trying to ensure that they are constantly you know, getting the right nutrition for themselves that is going to reduce the risk of them getting that second hit that switches a vulnerability into kind of live illness. That's right. And you write that the brain and our neurotransmitters are made of nutrients. So why are we surprised <laughs> of this connection? Absolutely. And it, it's one of those things, right? We When we think about food, we tend to think about it either just in terms of energy, uh -huh. you know, I'm low on energy, or we think about it in terms of aesthetics. Is this thing, this product, this food going to make me fatter or thinner? Right. You know, those of us who consider ourselves a bit more enlightened and might be thinking about longevity, will it make me live longer? But we're not really considering fundamentally that we are composed entirely of the broken down products of food. Mm. Whether that is the food that your mother ate when she was pregnant with you, the bit of you that is a piece of egg yolk or a baked bean or a chicken wing, you know, <laughs> that as you were being created, you were being created from those broken down constituent parts of your mother's diet. Mm -hmm. And therefore, food made you. And then when you eat everything that, you know, if you're replacing or growing tissues, if you're, you know, creating neurotransmitters that's made from the breakdown products or the food that you consume. So when we kind of get our heads around that, it shouldn't be surprising that the amount and the quality of the foods that we're eating have a meaningful effect on us. And, and also because our brain is the hungriest organ in the body. So if we know right. that nutrition affects the heart, which is a hardworking organ, then we shouldn't be surprised that nutrition affects the brain, which is an even harder working organ with many, many more jobs to do, many more things to keep track on, many more things to coordinate. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be surprised that nutrition plays a role in how well it's formed and how well it functions. I think what I want listeners to leave this conversation with is a sense of excitement and hope mm -hmm. that they can eat towards a more resilient brain mm -hmm. and that we have power. You know, I, I must admit, you know, reading some of this stuff as someone who's had three kids and, you know, you think, oh, my God, did I do that? Did I not sure. have enough choline? It, it's easy to feel very, very upset. But what I want listeners to leave with is a sense, especially a lot of my listeners do have mental illness. Mm -hmm how can I eat optimally for me and where I'm at? So that's mm -hmm. sort of where I, where I want to get to. Mm -hmm. But I think right up front, I'd love to establish some vocabulary, Sure. right? I'd love to establish the microbiome, mm -hmm. the vagus nerve, mm -hmm. maybe some of the major omega-3 brain food elements that you discuss. Anything that you think we need to know when we look at the picture of specifically adult mental health our brains and our guts? 
maybe I'll start from the top. So whenever I'm saying neuron, we're just talking about brain cells. So anything related to cognition, which is how you are thinking processes, but neurons, and they send their signals to one another through these neurotransmitters, which are chemical signaling molecules Mm. in the brain and, and otherwhere in the body as well. Your vagus nerve, is a long nerve. It's um, technically the 10th cranial nerve and it comes out the back of your skull and it's called the wandering nerve. That's where it gets its names. Vagus, like vagabond, vagrant, that kind of sense of wandering because it really does wander throughout the body. So it goes down from the back of your skull, down the back of your throat. There are some parts of it that loop near close to the ears and then it connects into all of your major organs, your heart, your lungs, your stomach, your liver, your kidneys, and then it rounds out at the bottom. It's got lots of, it's not just one nerve. It's like it has lots of little fingers that come out from it Mm. and it rounds out in the gut. Okay. And so it is the main physical, you know, kind of physical connection between the gut and brain. When we think about the gut-brain axis, Mm -hmm. you know, the gut-brain connection, it is the, you know, main physical direct route and it's a bi-directional. So information comes from the brain down the vagus nerve to the other organs and to the gut and vice versa. Your brain is constantly getting information from the gut and from the body and it's being sent to the brain. And in fact, if you would think about the vagus nerve as a highway with 10 different lanes, then (laughs) seven or eight of those lanes would be going upwards from the body into the brain. Because we often think about the brain just sending out information, sending out instructions into the body, but actually it's constantly getting information, synthesizing, coordinating, understanding information, what a body is telling the brain all the time. Mm. And then the microbiome is the term that describes the vast ecosystem or the population of different microbes that live in your colon, so the large intestine. And so that's, we mainly talk about bacteria, but it's not just bacteria. There are viruses in there and there are yeasts in there and there are little tiny microbes called archaea in there. And they all kind of live, hopefully, in a cohesive population. Mm. What we absolutely know about the bacteria is that they're not just squatters, you know, they're not just they're just moved in and they're like living off you. They are earning their keep. They're paying their rent and they pay their rent when you feed them, when you feed them predominantly, ideally fibre, that's their favourite type of food. Mm. Um, when you feed them, then they produce beneficial compounds. So they produce vitamins, some vitamins. Mm -hmm. They can produce the precursors, so the building blocks of neurotransmitters like GABA. They can produce some neurotransmitters themselves. They don't tend to, we don't think, cross into the brain, but they might have more local effects. And they also produce a type of short-chain fat. So fats can be either long or short. Mm -hmm. The fats that your gut microbes produce when you eat enough fibre are called short-chain fatty acids. And What's really interesting and important about them, so again, partly they can control, I mentioned earlier, your gene expression, but they also protect this really important structure called the blood-brain barrier. And the blood-brain barrier, I like to think of it like a bouncer outside a nightclub in a doorman, (laughs) (laughs) but like a really exclusive nightclub. Your brain is a really exclusive club. And if your name's not down, you're not coming in. And so what the blood-brain barrier does is to basically look down the list and absolutely prevents anybody 
any troublemakers, anybody who shouldn't be there from getting in. And that's really important because your brain is very, it's, it's wonderful, it's complex, it's beautiful, but it's very fragile. And mm. if there are kind of maybe fragments of food or proteins or any toxic compounds in your bloodstream, what you don't want is them crossing over into the brain. And right. so the blood brain barrier helps to prevent that from happening. But what it requires is the short chain fatty acid. And what that requires is sufficient fiber intake. Fiber, fiber, fiber. Fiber, fiber, fiber. Honestly, eat more beans is my new campaign slogan. (laughs) The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. It's very clear that the kind of psychology that I'm sure you were trained in, Mm. that most people of our generation were trained in, which was very head-focused, very Mm emotion-focused, is really making way for a much more whole-body approach. And you talk about something called the inflammation theory of Mm. depression, Mm -hmm. replacing the serotonin theory, which again, how many SSRIs have I been on in my life? I can't even count. Which is what we traditionally leaned on when we were thinking about depression, anxiety, and and a lot of typical mental illnesses. Can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that and then why you as a nutritionist are very interested in the inflammation theory of depression and mental illness? Sure. And I suppose it's worth maybe we outline what the serotonin hypothesis is. And I think broadly, the serotonin hypothesis, the serotonin is a neurotransmitter in the brain, a signaling molecule. And I guess the crude version of the theory is that not having enough serotonin in your brain was a cause of depression, which is why serotonin is often called the happy hormone or happy neurotransmitter. If you have enough of it, you will not be depressed. And so the early SSRIs were designed to keep serotonin more available in the brain. And they do that either one of two ways, by increasing synthesis perhaps, or reducing the rate at which it is kind of recycled or reabsorbed because your nerves of the brain cells, they release serotonin and some of it will cross a little gap and dock with another cell. So it will cross what's called the synapse and dock with the receptor cell and send its signal onwards. But not all of it does that because it's not a kind of active directed process. The the serotonin just kind of drifts across. If you think about like the throwing a, a set of uh, balls across the Grand Canyon, like you said, you throw a lot and some of them will reach the other side. The rest will fall into the Grand Canyon. Yes. And those ones that fall in can be reabsorbed to the original side of the canyon, right? So they can be reabsorbed by the signaling messenger neuron. 
And so the SSRIs were designed to stop that reabsorbing recycling process from happening so that essentially more of the balls are staying floating in the air and hopefully some (laughs) of them can hit the other side. Mm. There have been controversies about that theory for a long time. And not least of all, because we know that SSRIs start increasing availability of serotonin pretty quickly when you start taking them Mm -hmm. within a a day or so. But actually, people weren't seeing any effect on mood for at least a fortnight. And that's still the case. You know, you, you have to be on them for a couple of weeks before you start to see any impact. So it didn't quite make sense. The mechanism didn't quite seem to make sense. You know, if there's more now, I should be feeling better now. Yeah. So what has shifted is more of a sense of maybe it plays a modulatory role. So mm-hmm. it's almost as if maybe what the drugs are doing is on that second side of the Grand Canyon, I guess the equivalent would be getting people with big nets out to catch the serotonin, <laughs> right? So it might be modulating the nerves to be more receptive. And that process of modulation might take a little while. But broadly, that also they don't really know. <laughs> There's this kind of, uh, we're not really sure. So those controversies have led to a new the development of a new set of theories of understanding the causes of depression. And what we absolutely know is, is that when we think about those risk factors that I mentioned earlier on, right? So genetic risk factors, early life stress, um, adverse childhood experiences, poverty, What we know about those factors, as diverse as they are, is that they have an effect on the stress system. They Mm. seem to affect either the genes that manage stress, so your genetic risk factors tend to be in those stress system genes, or they affect how reactive your stress system is. So early childhood experiences of adversity, poverty, perhaps, um, you know, being a victim of domestic violence or domestic abuse as a child, neglect. The aces, the all aces. Of those yeah, we've talked about those before. Yeah. They seem to kind of sensitize the stress system so that people who have had those experiences, they have a lower threshold for that activation. So it takes less, you know, objectively to trigger them. They have a higher reactivity. So their high point is higher and it takes them longer to return to baseline. Hmm. And when we see stress, we also see inflammation. They are a long married couple. <laughs> and in an evolutionary sense, that makes a lot of you know good sense. Because if we think of stress as the anticipation of mm-hmm. a threat or a challenge, so I become stressed when I notice a car is hurtling towards me right. because I recognize a threat then the sensible evolutionary thing to do is to prepare my immune system in case I get hurt, Mm -hmm. right? So when you get an increase in stress, you get an increase in immune activation or inflammation. And Mm. so what you see in these groups of people is not only do they have this higher reactivity of their stress system, they also have higher markers of what's called chronic inflammation. Yeah, And there are lots and lots of, uh, more in my first book, I go into the kind of detail as, the impact of inflammation and cytokines, which are immune signaling molecules, on things like serotonin and dopamine synthesis, the production of compounds that are toxic to the brain. So there's this relationship between the immune system and what happens in your brain, which might be setting up the conditions for depression. The way that that has been demonstrated is that people might notice this themselves when they get sick, when you get a virus, 
you will mood shifts. So that's one of the first indicators of that, that there might be this relationship between immune activation and mood impairment. But also you can give somebody in a placebo controlled trial enough of a substance that activates their immune system, but not bad enough for them to feel sick. Hmm. So their immune system has noticed that there's something up. But objectively, if you ask me, I would say I felt fine. But depending on how much immune activation is happening, I will tell you that I feel very low. So there's this kind of correlation between immune activation in these clinical studies and this impairment in mood. And so that's where we're moving towards in terms of the role of inflammation, that the inflammation hypothesis of depression, that for at least about 30% of people, there seems to be a significant role for the immune system, for inflammation in their symptoms. And again, the reason that I care about that is that we know that dietary patterns are associated with risks of inflammation. There is a tool that they use in research called the Dietary Inflammatory Index, which can give you an indicator of how pro-inflammatory or potentially anti-inflammatory your overall diet is. And the Mm. associations are there in the research literature. The more pro-inflammatory your diet, the higher the association with depressive risk and the severity of symptoms. What about the consumption of inflammatory foods? And I, and I would include alcohol in that as well and risks for, for anxiety or that, you know, again, when you're chronically anxious, you're sort of in that elevated threat state in your body. The evidence is at the moment a little less strong in terms of anxiety itself. So most of it seems to be linking more to depression. But what is clear for anxiety is the B vitamins. And there seems to be a really well-established role for adequate intake of B vitamins and either resilience against or recovery from anxious states. And again, we know that the B vitamins are essential for lots of features of healthy nerve function. So it seems to be this association between, you know, getting people up to adequacy. So we're not talking about having huge amounts of nutrients in your diet or in your um, in your bloodstream in your body. It's mm-hmm. just making sure people aren't deficient more than anything. But because our diets are, you know, whole foods, nutritionally dense whole foods, fruits and vegetables, whole grains and so forth, are now, certainly for both of our nations, the UK and the US, the minority of the diet, it means that almost by definition, our diets are deficient. There was a study called the SMILES study, I think, mm. that showed that when people ate to improve mood, many of their moods improved from a depressed state. Can you talk a little bit about what those foods were? Yes, I can. And I think it's worth saying that there's a little, there's, I think, three RCTs now, the SMILE study, the AMEND study, and healthy med. RCTs, randomly controlled trials. Randomized controlled trials, sorry, (laughs) which have looked at dietary improvement for depression. There are some questions about whether the things that's improving people's outcomes is the food or whether it's, you know, getting the attention and getting people on board and having someone to support Ah, you. Um, So that's worth kind of noting, but also for research to explore and, and clarify. But what we absolutely do know is that they're the associations between improved cognition and certain 
certain dietary patterns. And those foods tend to be the oily fish, um, those, you know, those foods rich, not just in the omega-3s, EPA and DHA, but in things like the minerals like iodine and magnesium and zinc and selenium and those sorts of things, which are, again, important cofactors, kind of supporting roles in the way that your brain works. Leafy green vegetables are associated with better brain health, slower brain aging. Brightly coloured compounds in berries, so polyphenols or flavanols are associated with better cognition, better memory, and for some people, better mood. And that might be partly to do with their effect on the blood vessels. They help to keep them nice and flexible. Or on the effect on the microbiome, because again, it's not just fiber. Your microbiome prefers fiber. It's its favorite food source, but they can break down other compounds and they can do that with polyphenols and they can make what are called phenolic acids, which have different effects on the body. And then legumes and nuts and olive oil. So these things that are rich in, again, flavanols, polyphenol compounds and fiber. And not so much alcohol. Not so much alcohol. And again, alcohol is a bit of a controversial one, less to do with mood. We, we're pretty clear on the fact that, that alcohol is a depressant. Yes. So there's not really any controversy there. And certainly some people get what is colloquially called anxiety. So they get an alcohol-triggered <laughs> anxiety. And that can be really severe. I've known of people who have panic attacks if they've had a heavy night of drinking. Mm. But... When it comes to brain health, so less to do with mood, but more in terms of brain health cognition, there's a bit of controversy in the role of alcohol. So we know that alcohol ethanol in its purest sense is a neurotoxin, but there seems to be recurrently over and over again, this association between moderate right. alcohol consumption. So, and when I say moderate, I mean about three or four tablespoons. So maybe that's the point. Um, wow. Moderate consumption of often locally made red wine, because we're talking about a Mediterranean style diet. And that seems to be for some people associated with protection. Now, how much that can be disentangled from the other protective parts of a Mediterranean diet and lifestyle, right? It still needs to be worked out. But it's true to say that it's a it's a conflicting area still for a lot of the nutrition research. Yes. I mean, I, I just know, you know, myself just tracking that alcohol as I get older, especially it does. It, I love it so much, but it feels like I'm poisoning myself. Mm -hmm. It just feels it. That leads me to something I thought was really fascinating and wonderful that you bring up, which is the concept of valence. Mm -hmm. And as someone with just a lot of chronic body pain, it really struck home with me because it's hard to be in a good mood when your body hurts. And if your yes. body is sending you lots of signals that things aren't right for whatever reason, your mood is affected in a bad way. Mm. And so talk a little bit about valence. Sure. Yeah. And I think just it, in some sense, it can be intuitive for people, but it's really worth knowing because when you know that, it really empowers you to try some things that might help. So the intuitive part is everything can be fine. The sun can be shining. The birds can be chirping. But if you've got a stone in your shoe, <laughs> you're, you're irritable. You, you know, you can't concentrate. You can't focus. You just, you can't even, even if it's a tiny little stone, it's irritating and you need to get rid of it before you can settle down again and be okay and appreciate the sun shining and the birds chirping. Okay. So, that is an indication that the state of your body has an effect on your mood, right? That physical discomfort has an effect on your mood. 
And the state of physical comfort or discomfort, pleasantness or unpleasantness is what we call valence. So positive valence is that I feel good, things are well, maybe I've got a, I've had a lovely nourishing meal, I don't feel hungry, I'm not in any pain or discomfort. And negative valence is the opposite, whether it might be hunger or too tight clothes, a stone in your shoe, physical pain, an injury, that kind of thing. And what we are coming to understand about our emotional world is that it's not just neck up. Your moods aren't just what's happening in your brain or how you're thinking. Your moods are a synthesis of the information that's coming in from your body, so the valence, as interpreted by your brain, which knits together what's happening to you in the present moment with what's happened in the past and your available emotion concepts, right? Hmm. So it's this kind of beautiful synchrony of all of these things. Now, the thing about that is that whilst you might consciously be aware that you have a stone in your shoe, most of the valence information that's going to your brain and informing your moods is unconscious. You are unaware of the impact of certain foods on your digestion that your gut might not be liking, right? Unless there's a kind of big symptom, you might not notice it. You're unaware of the impact of certain nutritional deficiencies on your metabolism or how your immune system might be working. You're unaware moment to moment of your blood glucose levels and all of that information, though you are consciously unaware of it, that might be going up to your brain and your brain is getting a message from your body that something's not right. I'm not Mm. happy. This isn't good. Something's not right. And what your brain will try to do is to make meaning of those sensations. Emotions are thought to be a way that your brain makes meaning of your physiological sensations. So if you're, even if everything else in the world is fine, but your brain keeps getting this message, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. It will try to work out what that is. And it will often try to hang it on something external. And I've certainly seen it with patients that, you know, they've come into a session, everything's been fine. And they'll say, I don't know, maybe something's wrong. Maybe I'm secretly not happy in my relationship. Maybe I secretly need to leave my job. And then the next week they've come down with a terrible flu. And actually that message was coming from their body. There was nothing wrong. It was, they were coming down with something. And so that's not to say that that's always the case, but it's always worth checking those things out first, right? Mm -hmm. If you're suddenly struck with a low mood, discomfort, despondency, check for all the physiological things first. Are you hydrated? Are you well slept? Are you well nourished? If you've covered those bases, then you can start thinking, okay, maybe there's something else going on that needs investigation. But it's really good if you can just cross those things off first, because the flip side is that you might be looking for disaster in your life when actually there's a simple, easy interventional fix, because it's about what your body is telling your brain. Yes, I feel that so deeply. As we close out here, I would just love to ask you, what's your recommendation for a good diet for someone who maybe like me runs a little anxious, mm-hmm. manages depression, manages bipolar 2, and is trying to eat a diet mm-hmm. that is anti-inflammatory and also builds that placidity because I'm not getting any younger? <laughs> So the general recommendation for anxiety, the general recommendation would be, like I said earlier, to focus on those B vitamins, making sure you're getting Mm -hmm. sufficient amounts of those. Um, B vitamins and omega-3s work hand in hand. You can't absorb your omegas without your Bs. So making sure you're getting those together. B12, B3, does it matter? The whole whole family, a B complex. 
Okay. So they should go together. But broadly, what we're talking about is ensuring that you're getting enough of as much as possible. And that really can only, I'm going to say, only effectively be done through a minimally processed, a largely minimally processed diet. So aim for your five a day, make sure you're getting those fruits and veggies in. If you eat a lot of more processed carbs of white bread and white pasta, see if you can switch over to the whole grain versions. Add half a can of lentils to your soup or your salad, you know, Mm. that kind of thing. Just try, you know, you don't have to overhaul anything. You can make slow introductions because if it's the rest of your life, then you don't have to do it all in once. You know, you don't have to do it all (laughs) in the same day. You can bring in, you can aim, okay, I can try to eat more blueberries. This month, I'm going to try to eat more berries. And then you can slowly build up over time. In terms of plasticity, it's omega-3s have been shown to improve plasticity or neurogenesis polyphenols. So again, berries and exercise. Mm. After I read your book, you should have seen me furiously ordering DHA omega-3 supplements for my entire family. I think Nordic Naturals is very happy with me right now. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so glad for your work and for this time together. My pleasure. It's been lovely. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.